I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We're continuing our series um, on the attributes of God as they're listed for us in Belgic Confession Article 1. And this morning we'll be considering God as eternal and incomprehensible. What do we mean by uh, those two attributes? And so here in Psalm 90, we hear of God being, uh, as we have just said, eternal, everlasting to everlasting, and uh, specifically how God's, uh, God's eternality, God being eternal, is a great comfort for God's people in the midst of an ever-changing world. In the midst of time in which everything is always in flux and is moving, uh, we have a God who is our refuge, our dwelling place from generation to generation. And so when God reveals himself to us, as we said last week, he doesn't just reveal himself that it might speculate in our, in our minds or flit around in our brains, as Calvin says, but rather that it might duly affect us as we perceive it and as we come to know him, our God. And so uh, we see that at work here in Psalm 90. So read the whole psalm beginning at verse 1. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The year of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's especially going to be verse 2 that we're going to focus upon. If I could just read that again. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We're going to turn to the Belgic Confession as well, in the back of the hymnal we sang from. Page 855, there we find Article 1. Let's read that article together. Article 1, the only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. So far from the confession. 
Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we began our series on the attributes of God. And for some of us, that phrase, the attributes of God, may sound quite uh, unfamiliar to us. What do we mean when we speak about God's attributes? Well, one uh, Reformed theologian put it this way, God's attributes are the perfections of his being revealed to us. The perfections of God's being, the character of God's being as he has revealed it to us. These are the attributes of God. He goes on to say that God is infinitely perfect. In most harmonious unity, all perfections are in God. His being is infinite perfection. And God cannot reveal the fullness of his being to us all at once, right? We cannot take in the fullness of God all at once. And so God reveals himself to us in various ways and at various times insofar as we need to know him. He goes on to say that these manifestations or revelations we call God's perfections or his attributes. And just as light may be broken in various colors by letting it pass through a prism, so the unlimited perfection of God appears in his manifestations to us as a sum of various perfections, right? And so as God reveals himself to us, he reveals himself in various attributes, various perfections, though all of them coming together in God's simple, undivided being itself. And so all of these attributes reflect to us the perfections of who our God is. I mean, last week we began to look at the fact that God is simple, spiritual, and single, those, those initial attributes of God. And this morning, we're going to be taking up two more of God's attributes as they've been revealed to us, namely, God as eternal and incomprehensible. What do we mean when we say that God is eternal and incomprehensible? We're going to begin with God's incomprehensibility. What does it mean that God is incomprehensible? And I want to turn to read from Isaiah chapter 55. Likely some familiar verses uh, to us, Isaiah 55, uh, verses 8 through 11. There God says to us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return... There, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so here in Isaiah, as the Lord speaks to his people and speaks to us, he reminds us that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. So that when we begin to approach God and come to think about knowing God, we come, as we said last week, humbly before God, recognizing that if I am to know anything of who God is, God must reveal it to me. And I do not come before God in a proud manner, thinking that what I conceive of God or how I might picture who God is or imagine him is who God truly is, but rather God is as he has revealed himself. And so while God's thoughts are above our thoughts and his ways above our ways, we recognize that we can still know something of who God is. And so when we confess that God is incomprehensible, 
We are not saying that he, that he is inapprehensible, as if we could never know anything about God. But when we confess that God is incomprehensible, it means that we cannot claim to have complete, exhaustive knowledge of who God is. God is infinite, and we are finite. God is eternal, we are temporary. And therefore, when we confess that God is incomprehensible, we're not saying that we cannot know anything about God, and we cannot speak confidently about who God is. We can do so because God has revealed himself. But rather, when we confess that God is incomprehensible, we are recognizing our own limits. We are recognizing our own limitations before, before God. And so when we say that God is incomprehensible, we are confessing, as God said, that his thoughts are above ours, his ways are infinitely above ours also. And therefore, we come humbly before God to learn of him and to receive of him. Now, the reason we're able to take in this revelation of who God is, and the reason we're able to know God, even though as he's revealed himself in ways to us, is because he has also made us in his image. The fact that you are made in the image of God means that you are made to receive the revelation from God of who he is. You are made to know who God is and to receive that. Your heart is boss put it this way. He said that the image of God means above all that we are disposed for communion with God and that all the capacities of our soul can act in a way that corresponds to their destiny, what they were made for, only if they rest in God. And so the fact that we can know God rests in the fact that God has revealed himself to us, and he's revealed himself to us as those who are made in his image. And that's deeply important uh, for a number of reasons. One, it humbles us, as we've been saying. We were were reminded of uh, Moses' um, warning to the people of God when he says, the secret things belong to the Lord. It keeps us from, from prying into and seeking to understand things that are far above us. And it gives us then a sense of mystery, a proper sense of mystery, a mystery that the world has never been able to expel from its thinking. We tend to think of ourselves as, as rational today, though really it's a kind of rationalism, where we think that if we are not able to understand something, then it cannot be known. And so we have removed and tried to remove the sense of mystery from all around us. And yet, as the world declares to us the glory of God from the heavens uh, to the trees to the grass to the the smallest particles, all of it declaring God's glory reminds us that we are surrounded by great mystery. And it reminds us then uh, that as we engage with knowing our God, that we come before him humbly. The secret things belong to the Lord, but what he has revealed belongs to us. And therefore, what God has revealed We ought to pursue it and desire to know it with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It also means that as we think about God's incomprehensibility, it means the fact that he has then revealed himself to us ought to give us wonder as we come especially before his word, right? Not only a sense of mystery in the world around us, but also especially when we come to his word, The one who is far above us, the one whose thoughts are not like our thoughts, has spoken. And he's given us a word that we might know it and through it come to know him. And and therefore, when we come to God's word, there ought to be a sense of wonder. 
And that wonder should express itself in prayer. God, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Out of your law. That's what the psalmist prays for. And so right, God's incomprehensibility now, now changes the way we approach his word. It gives us wonder, it gives us appreciation that the one who is far above us has condescended to us, he has spoken to us, he has revealed his thoughts to us in such a way that we might then understand them. And what greater wonder than coming before God himself, the incomprehensible one, than to know that within his eternal counsel and his plans, within his thoughts that are far above ours, God at the heart of what he has revealed is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, given to us that we might find salvation and come, might come to know our God who is otherwise incomprehensible. What a marvelous thing then as we come before God's word. And so God's character, right, is the attribute of his incomprehensibility changes us and causes us then to recognize that there are things that, are, that exist far beyond our minds can fully understand And yet we can know God and we can know these things as he has revealed them to us. There's great wonder as we come before our God. The second thing that is told to us in scripture and and listed for us in the Belgian Confession is that God is also eternal. So God is incomprehensible and God is also eternal. And this is what we see in Psalm 90. I could remind you of verse 2 before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God and here the psalmist begins to express God's eternality the fact that God is not one who is dependent and subject to time we might ask the question well, what then is time and it's kind of a fascinating question to, and we won't uh, go too deep into this question But when we think about time, time we can simply think about as a mode of creaturely existence. It's the way we exist as creatures in terms of having a succession of moments, right? We don't experience everything all at once, but we experience life and we go and we exist in a succession of moments so that we have a past, so that there is a present moment and that there is a future. And so time is a creaturely mode of existence, And what the psalmist is saying is before the mountains, before the ancient mountains, the oldest things we can probably think of, the things that last from generation to generation, even before they were formed, before time began, God existed. And God was, right? This is reflected in the very opening of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before the earth was brought into existence, before the heavens came into being, God was And this is what the psalmist is celebrating here in Psalm 90. That God is without beginning. He is from everlasting. That God is without end. He is to everlasting. And God is without a succession of moments. As if God experienced things from moment to moment. And there is a past and a future for God. For God, it is an eternal present. He is from everlasting. He is to everlasting. And in the midst of it, he is God. You are God, as the psalmist says. This is a wonderful thing uh, for us as uh, God's people to know that God is not bound by time, but that God is eternal. 
It's a great comfort for us in a number of ways. I'm going to list uh, five of them for us uh, here. And these I drew from uh, the great Dutch Reformed theologian, Petrus von Maastricht. And so the first thing that God's eternality should do is it should rouse celebration uh, in us of who God is and a sense of gratitude, just as Psalm 90 expresses as well. We recognize that God alone is eternal, that, that no other thing that has come into existence partakes of eternality other than God himself, and that God from all eternity has elected a people to save and to bring them into his covenant with him. That this was God's plan from all eternity, knowing you and setting his love upon you, as we see throughout the scriptures, especially in Ephesians chapter 1. And so in the midst of all of the, the, the change, in the midst of all of the difficulties, in the midst of everything, even as the psalmist expresses, in the midst of our own f- f- uh, finiteness, in the midst of our own sense of fleetingness of life, we rest in the fact that God is eternal and he has known us from eternity past. The second thing is God's eternity shows us the vanity and the natural fragility of ourselves and of all things distinct from God. It gives us, again, a a kind of a proper perspective that as we face various things and have various things before us that we might desire to pursue, we have to recognize that God alone is eternal. That there is nothing else that I can possess or grab hold of or give myself to that is eternal like God. Maastricht says this, that from all this it is apparent how vain and foolish it is to promise ourselves anything constant and unchangeable from any created thing, riches, honors, pleasures, indeed even our own life, or to fix our hearts on them as if they were everlasting. And on the other hand, how prudent it is to drag our affections away from transient things and to bind them to God alone, who through his eternity has neither end nor succession, and thus is always the same, that he alone may be for us a habitation, a dwelling place from generation to generation. All right, and so what we are setting our affections and our hearts upon, first and foremost, must be our God. Nothing else is eternal like our God. And so we say with the psalmist in Psalm 90, but also in Psalm 39, verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Right? As we look upon God as our dwelling place from generation to generation, it then gives us a proper perspective of ourselves here now as those who are pilgrims, those who are guests like all of our father's sojourners. And it's this that's reflected all throughout the Psalms. Think of Psalm 23 as the great comfort of God's people. Right? It, whether we're, we're brought through quiet streams and, and, and luscious uh, grass, or we're brought through the valley of the shadow of death, all of it, our shepherd is leading us to our heart's desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. And that imagery is all throughout the Psalms, the house of the Lord, reminding us that our present existence is one of tent dwelling, one that is not permanent. What is permanent is what is ahead of us, the eternal home of our God. 
And so that's where the Bible, that's where God's word, and as we reflect upon his eternity, leads us to. The third thing that God's eternity does for us is that it comforts us in the face of all evils. When sin accuses us of being exiles from eternal life, right, not possessing it liable to eternal destruction and death, we're reminded of God's promise to us. Psalm 103, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. What a great comfort in the midst of my sin that may accuse me and may hold before me the, 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 the terrifying prospect of eternal death. I'm reminded that God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. When we feel spiritually deserted by God, right? In moments where, where I feel spiritually weak, right? God's eternity is a great comfort to me. Psalm 117, verse 2. Great is God's steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So that I know that, that my spiritual desertion, my sense of feeling uh, alone and far from God will not last. God is faithful even then, and he will bring me back to himself. And therefore, I great take, great, take great comfort in knowing that the faithfulness of the Lord endures not for a time, but for eternity. Also, when we face disasters and, and calamities, hardships, trials in our life, right? there is no sweeter comfort in the midst of them than to know that God is eternal, and that God is with us. Paul tells us this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He says that all of our afflictions, though they are weighty and though they hurt, and, and Paul doesn't downplay that. He says, though our afflictions, we, we face them, he says, they are momentary. And they are also working for us, as Paul says, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And therefore, it gives us a perspective, even in our trials and hardships, to know that they are working for us a glory that is of eternal weight. That is what awaits us. And even when we face the terror of death, we have the great hope and the prospect that God is eternal. And he will transform death into a portal into eternal life for us. Jesus says that the one who believes in him has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Right. So in the face of all of e- well, these various evils that we can, we can face, God as eternal brings us great comfort. That God as eternal also invites us to believe, to strive, and to live for eternity. Again, it gives us a proper perspective. Ecclesiastes reminds us that eternity has been placed in our hearts. And as we reflect upon the fleetingness of life, even as Psalm 90 does, right? As it talks about in verse 8, you sweep them away as with the flood. Our days are like a dream. Like grass, it's renewed in the morning. It flourishes, but by the evening it fades and it withers, right? He's reflecting upon his own uh, temporariness, and the fact that life is so fleeting. And so in the midst of this life on, in this world that is so fleeting, God calls us then to reflect and to believe upon and to strive for what is eternal. Again, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians ver, ver, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, says that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so the question is, right, as we think upon God who is eternal, who has made us in his image, and has made us then to know him and to love him and to serve him for all eternity, are you thinking often about eternity? I think, I think the way our world operates, right, it's all, it, it, it consumes our minds with the present moment and it causes us to think of nothing beyond the immediate circumstances and situation. And it's very detrimental to the church because now the church becomes reactionary to every little thing that happens in the world around us. And while we ought to be able to speak to those things, we ought, we ought not to be controlled by them and the agenda of the church dominated by them. Our perspective is eternal. We see more, we see larger, we see wider and further than the world around us. And therefore, it's not the world that ought to dictate to the church what ought to be our priorities, but rather the church ought to dictate to the world what ought we ought to uh, have as our priorities. It's what we proclaim, it's what we preach, and our lives declare it as well. That we look not to the things that are seen, which are transient, but to the things that are unseen, which are eternal. And of course, we recognize that our eyes have been opened to these things because of the work of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in us. The Spirit of the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is the one who dwells in us as his people. And it's he who has now set our minds and our affections upon what is eternal. And to look forward to them, not with dread and fear, but with great anticipation of what awaits us in the house of our God. It's there that the incomprehensible God will make himself all the more fully known to us, his people, that we might know him, love him, and serve him. And so, to quote Maastricht again, let us also live for eternity. That is, let us think on eternity and on those things that are eternal, not momentary, not earthly. Let us speak about eternity and eternal things. Let us strive for eternal happiness and blessedness looking to it. Let us work for eternity. Let us suffer for eternity. Let us pray for eternity. Not just because we desire to live forever, but that we might behold the face of our God forever and ever. That is what you were made for. Not just for life that does not end, but life that does not end in the presence of God to glorify and enjoy him forever. And therefore, we are not to think about eternity as the world might, right? Who does not want to live forever, though maybe some people don't? But right, nobody wants to face death. But the Christian, we desire eternity because it's there that we will experience the love of our God and the joy that is in his presence forevermore. And therefore, we ought not to think about eternity as unbelievers, But we ought to think about eternity as those who have been saved in Jesus Christ and belong to him, body and soul, in life and in death. And when we think about eternity, we ought to think about our God who is eternal and the one in whose presence there is fullness of joy and whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the marvel, the wonder of your word. That though you are far above us, and we would have no knowledge of you had you not revealed yourself to us, yet you have done so in your word. And so, Father, as we come before your word today and throughout the week, uh, Father, we ask that you would give us a sense of wonder, 
And also a sense of prayerfulness as we ask that that you might open our eyes to behold these things that you have revealed of yourself, your perfections. And so, Father, as we come before your word, may we desire more and more to know you as our God. And so, Father, may that be accomplished through your word as it has gone forth today, even as we're reminded of Isaiah's uh, great comfort that your word as it goes forth accomplishes its purpose, even as the waters are sent from the heavens to water the earth. And so, Father, we pray that your word would water our souls and that from them would spring a great uh, great harvest of life, even life everlasting. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.